You're listening to Marks of a Healthy Church, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Welcome here this morning. If you haven't got a a handout, there is one just over where uh, Dan Smolders is picking one up, and there's a pen there as well. Uh, If you don't have a uh, writing utensil, I would suggest getting one because you're going to be writing some things in on the handout. But with that, I'm going to pray and we will get started because we're already around five after here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here uh, to learn about you, to open your word, um, and to learn uh, what it means or what is uh, expositional preaching. Uh, Lord, it's foundational. It's important. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that because of that, uh, we have an opportunity to have union with you and we can have a relationship with you. We have eternal hope, Father. Uh, Lord, this morning we pray in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. On September 24th, 1759, Charles Simeon was born. Simeon was born into a wealthy home, but not a Christian home. His youth was spent at the Royal College of Eton, England's premier boarding school. To give a little bit of context surrounding that, Charles Simeon was alive during the time of the American Revolution. So Britain, or England, was very much still the center of the universe, as we know it in this world, and very much Eton, uh, Royal College of Eton was a centerpiece of that center of the universe. He was kind of at the place to be. His time there was spent wearing fancy clothes and showing off his gifted athletic ability. At 18, Simeon moved on to King's College at the University of Cambridge. You may have heard of it. It's quite a prestigious institution. It was here at Cambridge that a professor introduced Simeon to the person of Jesus Christ, which forever changed his life. Simeon was born again, and the effects of his new life were immediate and dramatic. From then on, Simeon recognized the Lord's call for him to become a pastor. He was driven with one goal in mind. On November 10th, 1782, he preached his first sermon at Trinity Church in Cambridge. And for the next 54 years, Charles Simeon would faithfully preach God's word through frequent and intense periods of persecution. My assumption this morning is that there's a good many of us that have never heard of Charles Simeon. He does not have the name recognition of a Luther, a Calvin, a Spurgeon, a Wesley, and Edwards. But even so, his his testimony is impactful. He had extreme endurance in the pastoral office, 54 years faithfully pastoring Trinity Church. And he did persevere through frequent opposition to his ministry. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but it it was both intense opposition and lengthy opposition. It, It lasted for a long time. However, even though those accomplishments are impressive, the most noteworthy thing about Charles Simeon were his convictions about how to handle God's Word. Simeon's conviction about expositional preaching was this. He said, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I might think is there. 
I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of Scripture in the passage that I am expounding. If you read through that and you really think about what that means, it's remarkable. Charles Simeon was known and will forever be known as a faithful expositor of God's Word. Simeon viewed the preacher as duty-bound to the text. So for the next three Sunday school classes, we will be looking at the first of the nine marks in the series, Nine Marks, which is expositional preaching. At the top of your handout, you'll notice kind of an outline which will break down what we're going to be doing week by week. The aim of expositional preaching. So what's its goal? What's the aim? Simeon tightly framed his aims for expositional preaching in the following way. It's very simple. I love this. He said, number one, and you can write this down, so I'll go slow, to humble the sinner. To humble the sinner. Number two was to exalt the Savior. And number three was to promote holiness. To humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, and promote holiness. Let's now look at David Helm's definition of expositional preaching. If you're wondering who David Helm is, he's the, the gentleman that wrote this book. This is uh, the, the Nine Mark series has a number of different books, uh, and they're all, I believe, all written by different authors. Helm is the, the author of this one. This is Helm's definition of expositional preaching. He says, Expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of a biblical text. Again, it's seeing what's in the text and then basing your sermon upon what is there, not what you think is there. In that way, it brings out the text that the Holy Spirit has put there. I would like now to take a few moments and examine how the Word must be our foundation and also the role of pastors in handling this Word. As I previously stated, expositional preaching is the first mark in the Nine Marks series. And you can read into that, because not only is expositional preaching the first mark, it is also the most important mark. Get expositional preaching established in a church, and all of the other marks of a healthy church will follow. Miss the mark on expositional preaching, and if you do get some of the other marks correct, it'll really actually just probably be a fluke. The main role of any pastor is to be a faithful expositional preacher. Pastors are to preach the Word. Now, I have a couple uh, different uh, parts of Scripture. I'm wondering if, if somebody can get. The first one is Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Somebody take Acts 6, verse 2. Anyone? Dan, thank you. And then the second one is 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 2. Somebody want 2 Timothy. Thank you. So, Dan, whenever you're ready with Acts 6, verse 2, you can fire away. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve the Awesome. So here we see the role of a pastor, or in this case, what was the apostles, right? The church was growing, there was more to do, there was more responsibility placed on the leaders of the church, and they had to prioritize. They said the first and, and foremost, the most important thing here is that the Word of God is taught and is preached. And that is what we need to devote our time to. It's where the office of a deacon was established so that tables could be waited upon by other faithful men in the church. 
2 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 2. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to subject the quick and the dead and the appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Awesome, thank you. Start of verse 2 that it says, preach the word, right? doesn't say preach anything else. Doesn't say preach what fits the audience of today. Doesn't say preach what you think like. It says preach the word. It's the foundation of the word of God. The foundation of the word must be established. Why? Because God has decided to act through his spirit, sorry, by his spirit through his word. It may just be because I'm thick-headed, but when I open my Bible so many times to, to read it, um, I open my Bible and I begin to read the text. I take for granted what I'm reading. I don't know why. I just do. And it's important that, that when you look into the text and you start to read, you, like, do you understand that you are, actually your eyes are hitting and your fingertips are running over the breath of the Holy Spirit as He worked through faithful men to put that into the Word of God? Like, think about what that means. That's incredible. You're actually running over the words of the Holy Spirit as God directed. It's amazing. Martin Luther was asked about his accomplishments as a reformer, and he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word did it all. The Word of God brings life. Mark Dever says that the most important thing you can look for in a church is the commitment from the congregation and the preacher to the centrality of the Word of God. It's the most important thing that you can look for in a church. Some of you may move from here someday. Some of you may be visiting. Some may be listening to this randomly from our website on the the recording. Wherever you are, wherever you need to look for a church for whatever reason, the most important thing in a church is faithful expository preaching from the Word of God. It's foundational. It needs to be what you look for in a church. Matthew 4.4 4 says, But he answered and said to them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I hope this morning that the introduction to this has at least established that the foundation needs to be the Word of God and the Word of God alone. We'll now move to the first component of expositional preaching, and that is contextualization. Now, I could have kind of uh, uh, gave these to you in really any category because not one has to be done before the other. There's probably a suggested way to do it, uh, but I just went again with the way that, that Helm outlined in his book. I thought he did a great job doing it. So what is contextualization? Well, contextualization is communicating the gospel message in ways that are understandable to appropriate appropriate to the listener's cultural context. I'll say that one more time because I fumbled on it and you probably should be on there for you. Communicating the gospel message in ways that are understandable to appropriate to the listener's cultural context. It's taking what the Word of God says, the text, and speaking it, preaching it in a way that is understandable to the listener today in the context of the place that they live. Now, you have a couple graphics up on your, on your uh, handout, and I'm going to help draw these out for you. Now, before you start to poke fun and tease and maybe jab at my artistic ability, 
I do teach art as part of what I do teach, so just keep that in mind, all right? It's kind of a sensitive topic for me, all right? <laughs> so again, the process, if you're a visual learner, the process of taking what is said in the text and putting it in a way that is understandable to the us and now is contextualization. Another great way of looking at it, by the way, this comes from uh, John Stott's book, uh, Preaching Between Two Worlds, or Between Two Worlds. Uh, fantastic book. I would, I would highly suggest reading it, but it is uh, Text to Today. And in between, you have this valley. Again, artistic ability on full display here. Um, you have this valley, and contextualization is actually the, bri- the bridge that will close the gap between those two. Again, if you're a visual learner, hopefully that does help you a little bit kind of understand what contextualization is. It's taking what the Word of God says and putting it in a form, preaching it in a way that is understandable to the audience of today. Contextualization is concerned with us and now. Contextualization is absolutely essential to good preaching. However, with contextualization, there is also great opportunity for error in preaching. We are to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at some of these common errors, and they are big ones. Just before we get into that, a quick point of application for you. As I was going through and preparing for this expository preaching, okay, give a Sunday school message on this. Well, how is this maybe necessarily going to apply to each and every individual church member? Not all of us are preparing sermons for every Sunday, right? Most of us are getting into the Word, hopefully getting into the Word on a daily basis and and reading and trying to understand better what God expects of us, trying to give a better understanding of what Christ has done for us. But how is this actually going to apply? Well, the more I considered it and the more I went through it, these three common errors that are seen by preachers in expositional preaching or preaching in general, um, they do actually really apply to the average church member as well. They apply by when you open up the Word of God, uh, are you actually committing any of these errors? It, it, it may be possible. The one overarching problem is called a blind adherence to contextualization. A blind adherence to contextualization. This is when preachers elevate contextualization to a studied discipline overly focused on practical gains. They end up treating the Bible in a haphazard way. Really, when you break that all down, it is a problem of misplaced emphasis. So you have the text, and you have today, and it's the preacher focusing much more on the application for today and how this will sound good and how this will come across to my listeners and how this will maybe sound trendy to my listeners. And that's the misplaced emphasis, which is the blind adherence to contextualization. There is a pressure as, or sorry, there is a pressure for preachers to be relevant for today. I think if you were to ask any preacher or any pastor, this is a very real pressure that they face, not just once in a while, but on a weekly basis. It becomes a choice of being relevant or a choice of being of the text. So we have a third graphic here. And we'll draw our little preacher up at the top here. 
And seemingly, a preacher has one of two options. A preacher can move towards the text, or he can move towards today. On the left side of this equation, if you want to call it that, <coughs> preachers that err toward the left side of the, the, the equation are concerned with the word, orthodoxy, and research. Those things all appear to be good things, and certainly they are good things, but when it, it becomes just a sermon about research, when the, the preacher gets up on Sunday morning and essentially just backs the dump truck up and unloads everything that they have learned through the entire week about the subject that is being talked about in the text onto the congregation, there's a problem there, right? There's no contextualization happening. It needs to happen in order for the congregation to really understand. On the right side, if they err way too far to the right side, the preacher is, is concerned about... Street credibility. The preacher is concerned about orthopraxy and relevance. You see the issue here? On both sides of the equation, these things can be good, but when is when it's focused on way too much in one direction, it starts to become a problem. Now, now that we have this graphic up there, one of the big things that Helm mentions in his book, and I would actually really agree with him, and I think our pastors do a fantastic job with this, is that this is completely a myth that a preacher either has to be a today guy or a text guy. I think that that's completely a myth. And in fact, when it's done well, that they can actually bring the today and the text and bring it together and when it is brought together, it, it's beautiful because it's the text as the Spirit has intended it to be with contextualization for today. And it's very, very effective. I really honestly do, and I'm not just saying this, I do think our pastors here do a great job with this. Preachers that are guilty of this blind adherence problem often forget that the biblical text is the relevant word. And it's what God's people need most. So the following three types of preaching are common outcomes of a blind adherence to contextualization. Number one is impressionistic preaching. In the 1850s, the dominant artistic style of the day was realism. It aimed to represent as closely as possible what the artists or the painter saw or had seen. The artist, when painting, would look five to six, six times at the object of his work and then paint one careful brushstroke. Then they would look another five or six times carefully and precisely and paint another one brushstroke. Very calculated, very precise. Two artists that were being trained in this style, you may have heard of them, were Monet and Renoir. They became friends and actually began, began to paint together. Both of these men began to experiment using brighter and more vibrant colors and to make a long story short, ultimately led a rebellion against realism. They were eventually labeled Impressionists. The Impressionist method takes what the eye sees, interprets it, exaggerates it, ignores part of it, and then ultimately distorts it. Unfortunately, this is how some preachers preach. 
They look for things that will make an immediate impression upon their listeners. Quick brushstrokes that connect the text to the listeners of today. This preaching concentrates on relevant impressions the preacher draws out from the passage of Scripture. Some preachers like this, many preachers like this, because applications come easy in this process. Applications that the congregation actually really likes. They focus on relevance. And the most tempting part of it all for a preacher is that it is relatively quick to come up with this. I imagine that this is a temptation that every preacher each Sunday or each week faces. The other part of the problem with this is that it's growing churches. It's growing church programs. People are coming in the doors because of this type of preaching. It's trendy. It's easy to listen to. The preacher can very quickly make very uh, applicable applications to the the, uh, audience of today. The problem is that impressionistic preaching is not bound to the text. It ignores any context and structure of the word, and therefore it misses the point of the text. Look quickly on your handout back to Helm's definition of expositional preaching. It says, expositional preaching is empowered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of a biblical text. That's the point. And impressionistic preaching completely misses that. Number two is inebriated preaching. Scottish poet Andrew Lang once humorously stated that some preachers use the Bible the way a drunk uses a lamp post, more for support than illumination. Inebriated preaching is when the preacher uses the word to stand in the pulpit and say what he wants to say, instead of communicating what God's word actually says. Again, I can imagine that this is a very real temptation for pastors, for preachers, right? Is there a problem in your local congregation? Maybe there is. Maybe it's an obvious problem that lots of people are having with. It would be very tempting for the preacher to open up a text and to say, no matter what is said in this word, the word of God, I'm going to link it to this problem so we can hammer out this problem and get it gone, right? That's a very real temptation. Inebriated preaching can come in a variety of different forms. The preacher has maybe has incredible, incredibly strong doctrinal views, which become the point no matter what text is being preached. A preacher may draw political views from a particular text that really aren't there. A preacher may come to some sort of therapeutic conclusion, regardless of what is in the text. We see that a lot with the prosperity gospel. All of these ways of using the text boil down to one problem. And as Helm states, the preacher is wanting to superimpose his deeply held passions, plans, and perspectives upon the biblical text. He's not submitting. He is superimposing those passions, those plans, and those perspectives on the text. When this happens, the Bible is reduced to merely a support for what the preacher has to say. Again, here we must look back to the convictions of Charles Simeon. He says, I have a great jealousy on this head to bring out of Scripture, what is actually there, and then make that the focus of your sermon. Number three is inspired preaching. A preacher does not simply spend time in the study and in the pulpit, but he also spends time, hopefully, reading the Word of God in private. 
I believe out of the three, just a, a quick point of application, I believe out of the three that this is probably one that can apply to church members the most. This is the error that occurs in inspired preaching, or this is where the error occurs in inspired preaching, is the private reading of the Bible. Today, preachers are increasingly appealing to their subjective reading as of God's Word as inspired. Let me explain here. They're operating on the principle that what moves their spirit in private readings of the Bible must be what God's Spirit wants preached in public, in front of the congregation, on a Sunday at church. They're opening up the Word of God. They are reading, and when they get a hint or something that pops into their mind, oh, maybe the text is talking about this. They take that and they run with that. It's a problem. An example of this reading strategy is called Lectio Divina. This is traditionally a Roman Catholic practice. This concept is having a great resurgence, sadly, among evangelical Christians today. The reading plan was originally intended to get members of the church, to get clergy into the Word, to spend a lot of time in the Word, which is a great thing. But as we find in the four-step process that I'm going to outline for you on this reading plan, there is monumental problems. Number one is to read. To get into the Word and to read. That's a good thing, right? Get into the Bible to, to really dig into what is being said and to read it. That's fantastic. Number two is where the problem occurs. In this reading plan, they call for the reader to meditate upon what's being read. That in and of itself is a good thing. But here's the problem. They tell them to focus on a word or a phrase and then wait for illumination. Essentially, you read a passage of Scripture, you focus on one word or a phrase in Scripture, and then you wait for Jesus to come calling. Number three in this process is praying. You then pray that the Spirit would give you the ability to contemplate deeper theological truths based upon this illumination that you have received, supposedly by the Spirit. Number four is simply to contemplate on it and then to take it from there. It sounds actually quite wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds very pious. It sounds very, uh, very religious. It sounds very, very good when you sit, if you were to sit down and do this. But there is a one big problem with it, and it's that that is not Jesus calling. God has spoken through his word. We do not need a new or fresh word. We need his word. God's word is the most relevant thing that there is today, and that's what we need. Um, I was recently uh, privileged enough to, to go to a... Uh, conference uh, as part of uh, my, I, I get some uh, professional development um, money allotted to me at school. Um, and I asked, uh, a large part of what I do at school is I actually help uh, run chapels. So I speak at chapels uh, for kindergarten to grade eight students. Kindergartens are definitely a challenge to speak to, but it's it's a learning process. Um, but anyways, the, the one thing I got to do is I got to go to this conference. And the one uh, person that was speaking at this conference was H.B. Charles Jr., uh, H.B. Charles Jr. is a, a pastor at Shiloh Church, I believe, in Jacksonville, Florida, maybe Fort Lauderdale. Anyways, in Florida. Uh, he, he 
he pastors a, a large church there. And the one story that, that directly connects to this that he, he mentioned was he always tells the members of his church that if you're ever visiting somewhere or if you ever move somewhere and you go into a church for the first time and the pastor gets to the front and opens up the word and kind of goes like this and says, I have a fresh word for you today. He says, you get your hat, you get your things, you get your kids and you get out of there <laughs> immediately. There's no such thing as a fresh word. I'm not saying that there's no such thing, but if it is a fresh word, you need to let it ruminate for several hundred years to see if it, it stands the test of time. There really is not much, if anything, Dan, you may be able to correct me on this, that thousands of years of theological thought has not come to some sort of truth, right? When you open the Word of God, it says what it says, and if it's some wildly held belief or, or truth that you see jump out of the text, and it doesn't line up with anything that anyone has ever said, right? Brilliant minds that have come before you, then more than likely you're somewhere in the air there and you need to be very, very careful. So if you ever go into a fresh church and, or a fresh church, if you ever go into a new church and hear some of the pastor say that he has a fresh word for you, you get your hat, you get your kids and you get out of there. Now, I want to make a disclaimer. Uh, there is no question that the Holy Spirit has a role in expositional preaching. I, I want to just completely dispel that because until now, if you're listening to this, you may think, wow, this, this, uh, this is not leaving any room for the Spirit. That's, that's not true in any way. In fact, the Holy Spirit guides the preacher through the process of expositional preaching. But the difference is, is that it's not the subjective thought of the preacher that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, therefore I have to tell this to my congregation. Preaching this type of devo- like this type of devotional reading that we just read is dangerous. It leads God's people away from the Word of God. A great example of this is Philippians 4.13. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Philippians 4.13. Many of you probably don't need to uh, flip to Philippians 4.13 to understand what is said there. But please flip there anyways, and we're going to go through a little bit of an example. So what I would like you to do is I would like you to read Philippians 4.13, and then I would like you to spend a few minutes reading the passages both before and after Philippians 4.13, and see if those passages speak to what is actually being said in Philippians 4.13. Okay, So read some of the passages before, some of the passage after, and then see if those passage inform what is actually being said in Philippians 4.13. First of all, what are some of the kind of the modern thoughts that you see? You know, the, the calendar verses. This is one of those, right? Philippians 4.13. What are some of the modern ideas that this verse would potentially mean? What do you guys think? Some of the modern, that modern uh, things that people would use this verse for maybe clarifies a little bit better. Dan. You, just, you see this verse like athletes use all Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Even Curry, he's a Christian and his favorite. Okay. Um, and so he asked if they included in his uh, Okay. And so on a lot of his things, it says, okay. I can do all things. That's the only part they were included. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yep. Yeah, so the the uh, one that goes right with that just a few years back is um, Tim Tebow. He used to do the, I don't know if any college football fans, he would do the eye black. 
Uh, and Philippians, Philippians, Phil 4.13 was written in his eye black. And uh, yeah, athletes, Christian athletes all over the place were using it. I can do all things through Christ. I can, I can make the NFL. I can, I can do whatever in this possible game or this, this final game because I can do all things through Christ. That's a good one. What else? Hopefully what you found in the text when you looked at it, we'll, we'll stop with that there. Hopefully what you found in the text is that it, it doesn't actually mean that at all, right? What does it mean based upon what you were reading in the text? That you can get through any struggle because Christ is with you. Okay, so very good. So on the the other side of it, it's talking through struggle, right? Absolutely. What what is the actual context of what's being said here? Who's writing and what is he writing about? Sorry, Paul. I was having a difficult time at this point in time and the Philippians have strengthened his will or shown him that God is with him. Yeah, absolutely, right? So it's Paul speaking. And Paul is actually in jail, right? And again, it's not this idea of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can make this last shot. I can get this promotion. I can do this this big thing, whatever it is in this particular day. Paul is actually talking about something specific here. He's not talking about promotions or making game-winning shots, but about enduring hardships so that the gospel may be advanced, right? Do you see how in a mere matter of reading a couple of verses to get the context before and after the actual verse that you're looking at, this, this idea of Lectino Divina, this devotional reading, this, I'm going to look to this for inspiration and make it what I want to make it is completely smashed, right? It's, it's completely done away with. There is a point to where a verse is. The Spirit has specifically placed it there, and it means something specific. It doesn't mean what you want it to mean. There's a context to it, and that's important to remember. If we had time this morning, we could go on and on and on and do a lot more examples like this. 1 Corinthians 13 is going to be one that we're going to be looking at uh, a, a week from now. Um, but it's important to understand that that there is context there, and that needs to be paid. It, it needs you need to pay attention to it. So just to wrap up, guys, um, a couple points of, of application, just, just to finish very briefly. So as we went through those common errors, I hope that you consider, at least this week, consider how you study God's Word. When you open up God's Word, consider how you study it. Are you making any of these errors? And if you are, it's it's probably something that you maybe just didn't realize. That's That's completely fine, to be honest. When I read through this, there were times in my life when I was very much the Philippians 4.13. I can score the big game, big goal in the big game. That's that's how I approached the text. But it's important that we, we understand that that's not the appropriate way to approach the text. So hopefully that can be a point of application to you. Number two is just, I hope that as we went through this, that we have a greater appreciation for the pastors that we have. Because week in and week out, they faithfully have to go to the Word of God and they have to do the hard work, as we're going to see next week and the week after, of digging into the text and seeing what the Spirit has actually placed there, what is actually being communicated there, and then taking that and making it relevant for us today based upon the structure and the emphasis of what was in the original text. And it's really, really difficult. As I've gone through and I've, I've read this and I've been preparing for these three weeks, I have certainly, uh, I certainly have a much greater appreciation of what Pastor Rick and Pastor Dan do on a weekly basis because it is extremely difficult. So hopefully those two things became clear to you. Um, I'll end with a quote from Helm. It's at the very bottom of your, your handout. 
It says, our world, like Simeon, Simeon's, desperately needs to know how deep humanity has fallen, how high Jesus Christ has ascended, and what God requires of his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to learn about expositional preaching. Lord, we thank you that your word is relevant. It's the most relevant thing that, that we are ever going to encounter in this world. And we thank you that you have placed each passage, each verse in your word in a specific place with a specific structure with a very specific meaning for us. I pray that we would always avoid the temptation to go to the text and to place our presuppositions and, and, and make it what we want it to, but to go to it and be willing to do the hard work to actually find out what is being said through your spirit. Father, we thank you for this day. I pray that you be with Pastor Dan this morning as he brings the word. Uh, we thank you for what he does every Sunday, week in, week out. And I pray that you just give him strength and endurance uh, to continue in this, as well as, as Pastor Rick. In your holy, precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.